You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. Again, my name's Harrison Ford. As always, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Have you ever noticed how the way that someone says something, or even the way someone acts while they're saying something, can undermine what they're trying to say? Or maybe put another way, it's possible for someone's manner to undermine their message. Let me give you a really trivial example of this. Think about uh, the, the drive-through, the fast food drive-through. You get in line, you pull up to the little speaker, and on the other side, someone says, welcome to um, you know, X, Y, or Z. But the way that they say that implies you're not actually welcome there. <laughs> They secretly hope that your car catches on fire before it gets to that first window. Now, compare that with another uh, anonymous, unnamed, maybe fictional uh, fast food restaurant that serves chicken and has a cow as a mascot. The way that their employees tell you that it is their pleasure to serve you is intoxicating. (laughs) It makes you think that they've got a little... A locket around their neck with your picture in it, and they've been waiting for you to come there all day. Their manner is befitting of their message. When they say, it's my pleasure, you kind of believe it, even though they're getting paid minimum wage. Now, that's a trivial example, but there are far more serious uh, examples of where this is applicable. Think about a doctor and their bedside manner. If a doctor is trying to convince a patient to do a risky but potentially life-saving procedure, their message has, or their manner has to fit their message. Their manner has to build trust and confidence in the message that they're trying to deliver. So, as you've heard me probably say here, the principle is that our manner has to fit our message. And if not, our manner is going to end up undermining our message. Today we are ending a short sermon series that we've been in called A Going Church. A couple of weeks ago, Eric talked about the message with which we go. We go with the Word of God. Last week, one of our missionary partners, Phil Davis, talked about the method in which we go. We go church planning. And today, I want to talk about the manner in which we go. Namely, that our words, our, our, our deeds, our actions, our lives should embody the gospel. We see an incredible example of this in today's passage. Timothy, Paul, Silvanus, they were all planning a church in Thessalonica. If you remember, this is Eric started in this book uh, two weeks ago, and then Phil zoomed us back to Acts, which describes their time there. So they're planning a church in Thessalonica. And their manner of conduct among the Thessalonians was befitting of the message of the gospel. Their manner was 
consistent with their message. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 12. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we, may not, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight today. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, so in this passage, I want us to see Paul's manner as he uh, was ministering among the Thessalonians, and then I want to use that as a way to evaluate our own missionary manner as a church. Do our lives reflect the gospel to the world around us? Is our manner of going consistent with the message with which we go? And to do that, I want us to consider three aspects of Paul's manner and the manner in which we're called to go. Our motives, our principle, or our priorities, and our conduct. Our motives, our priorities, and our conduct. First, let's talk about our motives. You know, if you're going to evaluate anything, which is what we're doing right now, one of the best places to start is with the question, why? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are we talking about being a going church? Or maybe coming at the question from a different angle, what is our motive in going? It's an important question because the motive behind what you do is deeply going to affect the manner or the way in which you do it. I saw this when I was a missionary in Romania. Um, There were some missionaries who were there that I met who uh, were there just because they kind of wanted to have a, a, a sense of adventure. They liked to travel. And so every free weekend that they had, they got on a plane and went to a different place. Because of that, their manner was itinerant and flighty. I, then I met other uh, missionaries who were there because they were doing the whole eat, pray, love thing. Uh, their, their being a missionary abroad was kind of a part of their self-actualization project. They were trying to find themselves. And so because of that, their manner was a bit self-obsessed. And then I also met missionaries who had a very obvious savior complex. They thought, I'm going to be the person to come and save Romania from atheism and cultural Christianity. So they came with their grand plans and their vision, and they said, uh, you know, it's my way or the highway. And so their manner was dismissive 
and self-aggrandizing. Now, I don't want to give off the impression that I was above any of that. I had my own questionable motives for being there too. And in fact, because all of us are people, sinners who struggle with sin, we all have mixed motives for anything that we do. A mixture of motives that are, some that are virtuous, some that are less than virtuous. And because of that, I think it's all the more reason that we need to be conscious to examine our motives so that we can, by God's grace, hopefully be motivated by the right things. In the beginning of our passage today, Paul is adamant that the Thessalonians know his motives for being there. We see this in verses 5 through 6. He dismisses three bad motivations for which he could have come. He says that he could have come with words of flattery, meaning he could have been there just to kind of flex his rhetorical muscles. You remember, Paul was a man of great learning, but he didn't do that. He was there, he was honest with them, he was straightforward with them. He then says that he wasn't there as a pretext for greed. In other words, he wasn't there to try and get rich off of them. And then he says, nor did we seek glory from people. Paul wasn't there to try and make himself look great. So what were Paul's motives? Look at verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Simply put, Paul's motive was love. Love, of course, first for God. He talks about that in verse 4, which is part of what Eric preached on two weeks ago. But as a consequence, love for others, specifically love for the Thessalonians. In verse 7, he describes himself as being like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I'm pretty sure that uh, if I described my, my ministry among you that way, I would get fired. <laughs> um, but it works for Paul. And the point stands, he loved the Thessalonians because God loved them and he loved God. That's why he was there. That was his motive. And that affected Paul's manner. Just like a mother gives herself fully, both metaphorically and literally, to her children, Paul, too, says in verse 8 that he gave himself fully to the Thessalonians. And so the question for us today is this. What are our motives in being a going church? Is it to, to make the city church brand look good? Is it to make ourselves look good? Is it to maybe please God? Well, God, I'm so sorry. I've done a lot of bad things. I'll do something. I'll be really outgoing. Is it maybe because uh, things are a bit boring here and we think maybe the idea of a church plant or mission sounds really adventurous. And maybe that will kind of uh, give, a, give a bit of spark to my faith. What are our motives in going? If our motives are um, misdirected, then the manner in which we go will inevitably undermine our message. But if the motives for which we go are primarily love for God and love for others, then our lives will inevitably reflect the gospel, and the manner in which we go will support the message with which we go. Now, the reason motive is so important is because it has a ton of downstream effects. 
So if love is your motive for doing something, it's going to radically reorder your life, especially your priorities. I think about one of my best friends. Um, he, he's a uh, works at a church, but he's a lawyer by training, and he, he worked in uh, law for a long time. His wife is a doctor. They live and work in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, because of that, they make significantly less money than they could if they moved to a different state or to a different city. But they stay in Jackson because they love Jackson. And they're not bitter about that kind of pay cut either because They love their church. They love their neighborhood. They love their family that's there. They love the city. Their love for Jackson reorganized their priorities, less around career and comfort and more around people and place. And it did the same thing for Paul. You know, I think we see this as we read the passage as a whole, and I think we certainly see it as we look at Paul's life as a whole, especially in the pastoral epistles and in Acts, um, it's clear that his uh, priorities weren't primarily career, family, or comfort. His priority was loving God and being a part of God's mission. I think, though, that there's one passage in specific, or one verse in specific in this passage, that will really drive this home for us. And it's verse 9. Look at it. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Now, Paul isn't being metaphorical here about the idea of labor and toil. He's talking about literal work that he was doing. You see, Paul and Timothy and Silvanus all had trades that they did in order to finance their missionary work. So they worked throughout the day. Paul, uh, in, probably as a leather uh, maker, or a leather fabricator, as a part of tent making, so that at night and on other times he could minister. With, this is very similar to what Phil Davis told us last week about a lot of pastors in Europe. They drive Uber um, during the day, and they pastor at night or on the weekends because their church can't yet afford to support them. And here's why I think that this should be particularly challenging for us. Our lives are largely centered around things like family, uh, friends, hobbies maybe, but especially our work. For many of us, our, our careers are functionally the center of our life. It takes priority. It's at the center and all of our, the rest of our life revolves around it. Work and careers at the center and we fit in whatever we can at the margins of our life. But notice that this is the exact opposite for Paul. For him, God and consequently God's mission was at the center of life and everything else fit in at the margins of it. Now, I want to give a caveat. I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we sacrifice family and friends and work on the altar of ministry. I'm simply saying that our priorities need to be rightly ordered by the motive of love for God and love for others. 
Phil, again, gave a great example of this uh, this past Sunday. He said that when he um, moved to Prague to plant Faith Community, he was sent by a church in Charlotte. Uh, funny enough, the church that uh, Brittany and I went to and worked at while we were in seminary. And this church sent, along with Phil, two other families. Now, they weren't moving as missionaries per se. Uh, one of them, uh, the, the husband, worked for Bank of America, so he was able to get his job transferred to Prague. The other family went because they um, were entrepreneurs and going to open and run hostels. And So what it was is they rightly saw work as subservient to mission, Work as something that didn't take the place of mission, but work as something that enabled them to live on mission. But, you know, let's be clear that this required sacrifice from them. They had to leave behind extended family. They had to leave behind the the homes that they had already had in Charlotte. They had to leave behind the comforts of the place in which they had lived and grown up. And... They could do that because they prioritized mission over everything else. And what they found, actually, is that though they left all of this stuff behind, God was faithful to provide for them in that absence. He gave them a new sense of home. Prague became like home for them. He gave them a new sense of family. The church community became their new family. He gave them new comforts in this new place that he sent them to. God was faithful to honor the sacrifices that they had made to reprioritize their life around mission. Now, God might not be calling you to a foreign land, but he's certainly calling you to use your work, your relationships, your skills, your hobbies in service of mission. So what might that look like for you? I think maybe for some of you it might look like actually turning down career opportunities because you know that if you took that promotion or if you took that job transfer, that job would then colonize so much of your life and your time that you wouldn't even have time to think about mission. You wouldn't have time to give of yourself, like Paul was talking about, to those around you. Uh, I think for some of us, it might look like having an older car or a more modest home so that we have room in our budgets to be able to give towards something like a church plant or a missionary or towards a mercy fund. Uh, For those of you with a family, it might also look like organizing your family time not around extracurriculars and sports, but rather around service and outreach to your non-Christian family and friends. This is all stuff that God is calling each of us to do as we reprioritize God and his mission at the center of our life. If our manner is going to be consistent with our message, if our lives are going to reflect the gospel, it's going to require reprioritization. Now, as we continue through the passage, we move from this kind of higher level uh, stuff like motives and priorities, and we move to more granular day-to-day realities. Specifically, we learn as we move through the passage about Paul's manner of conduct among the Thessalonians. In verse 10, he writes this, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless 
was our conduct. So Paul describes his conduct here as three things, holy, righteous, and blameless. And those three all have a similar meaning, but at the same time, they're different enough that they give us different vantage points into how Paul and Timothy and Silvanus lived among the people that they were ministering. You know, first, let's talk about holiness. Uh, whenever we think about holiness or the word holy, we tend to think about someone who's uber-religious, maybe someone who's a bit of a do-gooder. You know, that's why we have the phrase, holier than thou. But in the Bible, if something is holy, it just means that it's set apart from everything else for a special use. Specifically, set apart by God for a special use. God, who is himself set apart as the divine and transcendent other. There are so many things throughout the scripture that are described as holy. Uh, There are holy days, like the Sabbath today, or certain festivals that we find throughout the Old Testament. There are holy places, right? So whenever, uh, whenever Moses is near the burning bush, he has to take his shoes off to indicate he's in the presence of God. That place had become holy. Or you can think about in the tabernacle, the aptly named Holy of Holies. It was uh, something that was highly guarded. Only the, pre- the high priest could only go in there once a year because it was such a holy space because that's where the presence of God was. And of course, there's holy people. I mean, we think about uh, the Israelites, God's chosen, elect, set-apart people. A people called to be holy, he says. And of course, uh, after Christ, the New Testament, that's us. We, the church, are God's holy, set-apart people. So in saying, uh, in saying that his conduct was holy, Paul was saying that it was different from the rest of the world because his life was set apart to reflect the holiness of God. And that's true of each and one of us as well. You are a person who is set apart. You're a person who's necessarily going to look kind of different because you're called to reflect the holiness of God in your life. So this then brings us to that second word, righteous. Um, Righteousness can refer to a number. There's a wide, what we say, semantic range for the word throughout Scripture. But righteousness here is referring specifically specifically to something that theologians call the ethical dimension of holiness. In other words, righteousness is holiness working itself out in our daily lives. Holiness affecting our decisions and our actions. It's living in line with God's word, keeping his commands. This is what John talks about in 1 John 2 when he writes this. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in Christ. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Walking in the same way in which Christ walked. The imitation of Jesus. That's what it means to live righteously. And that's what Paul exhibited so well among the Thessalonians. Now, the problem here is that whenever we think about mission and outreach, we're tempted into thinking that we first have to try and prove to people, that, especially to non-Christians, that we're just like them. We're cool. We're normal too. And in one sense, that's certainly true. 
we work together, we take our kids to the same playgrounds, we all go to Target and leave with $50 worth of stuff that we didn't mean to buy. We're normal. So yes, in one sense, we're just like everyone else. And that's a good thing. God has sovereignly placed each one of you in your homes, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your friend groups. He's called you into those places to reflect him to those people. So yes, in one sense, you're supposed to be just like them. But in an, he, he wants you to be in those worlds. But he's also said that we're not supposed to be of those worlds. So in another crucial sense, we're not like the world around us. Why? Because we're God's holy, set-apart people. People called to reflect his holiness. People called to live righteously. And sometimes I think the urge uh, to appear relatable tempts us to compromise that righteousness. We can think, uh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but like, I'm one of the cool ones. I'm one of the good ones. You, uh, you go to parties and you drink too much. I mean, I do it too. Not all the time, but I do it sometimes. You lie to your boss at work. Well, I do too. He's a jerk. Again, I'm not saying that in my, this is a hypothetical context. Uh, we might also say, you think that the stuff in the Bible is pretty backwards and kind of weird? Yeah, me too. I just ignore those parts and, you know, I really focus on the stuff that I like, the forgiveness and mercy part. We try so hard to be relatable that there's a, t- a tendency or a temptation to compromise the righteous living that God has called us to. And now that might, seem like, that might not seem like a big deal, but it really is. This morning in Leadership Basics, we talked about 1 Peter 2, in which Paul reiterates what he says today in our passage when he talks about him living uh, blamelessly among the Thessalonians. In 1 Peter 2, he tells Peter, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable honorable, or as Paul says in our today, be blameless before the people that you're going to. What he's saying here is that we should expect in our lives that if we are reflecting the gospel, if we are living righteously, reflecting the holiness of God, the people around us aren't going to like it. This is what Jesus talks about in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. So Paul's saying, look, that's baked into being a Christian. If you are living righteously before the world, people are going to hate you for it. But he's saying we don't need to add any wood to the fire through our, uh, we don't need to give them occasion to think any worse of us and the, God, and the message that we carry with us. And I think today in the, in the, in the church, we have a, a, a really terrible, unfortunate example of this is misconduct and abuse in the church. It feels like every week there's some new story of abuse in the church. And what's happened is that because of that, 
there's been a growing number of people who've left the church and and some who've even left the faith because the people, people like me, pastors, leaders of the church who've called to be shepherds turned out to be wolves. It's awful. It's, It's damnable. That shouldn't happen. And yet it does. And because of that, this, ref- this misconduct reflects to the watching world, giving them even more reason to think, you know what, I was right to think that y'all are kind of weird. I was right to think you're just doing a grift. It's an incredibly sobering example, I think, especially for me as a pastor, of why our conduct matters, why our manner has to be- befit and reflect our message. Like I read earlier from 1 John, whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in that same way in which he walked. Friends, if we're going to claim Christ, we have to imitate him. We've got to walk in the way in which he walked. If we're going to be a part of the church, God's holy set-apart people, we have to live righteously. Otherwise, our manner is going to undermine our message, not commend it. So in closing, let me ask you this. How do we do? Remember, I asked us, uh, what I said about this sermon is we're going to look at Paul's missionary manner and then use that to reflect on our own missionary manner. So, how'd you do? If you're anything like me, uh, the evaluation probably didn't go too well. As I was preparing the sermon, the overwhelming sense that I was left with as I reflected on my own life is that my motives, my priority, and my conduct often uh, aren't in line with the message that I give with my mouth. And because of that, I felt convicted, and I felt this old temptation welling up within me. This old temptation to say, well, Harrison, you just need to pull, your bootstra- pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do better. You need to be better. But then I was reminded, thank God, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel isn't about what I've done. It's not about the goodness of my motives, priorities, and conduct. But it's, the, what, it's about what Jesus has done. It's about the perfection of his motives, priorities, and conduct. At our staff meeting on Monday, we always discuss the sermon text that's going to come up. And I was really struggling with this text to find the good news in it, as it were. And I remember asking the staff, I said, where's the gospel in this? Eric pointed to verse 8, particularly this, where Paul says, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. And he pointed out that that's what Jesus does to us. He comes, certainly, and shares with us the good news. But even more than that, the good news is that Jesus shares with us his very self. He gives us his own self. And after Eric said that, I couldn't help but recognize that if you made this passage uh, not about Paul, but about Jesus, everything would remain true. Jesus didn't come for greed or glory. He came to give of himself to us. He came to give of the wealth of his uh, heavenly inheritance. He came to give us his glory. He was gentle with us. He is gentle with us. He's an affectionately desirous of us. He doesn't burden us, but instead he sets us free. 
He lived the one perfectly holy and righteous life. He was the only blameless person that ever lived, and yet he shares that with us through our union with him. And yet, despite being the only blameless person, he dies a criminal's death, all that he, so that we can be invited into his kingdom and glory. Yes, this passage is about Paul, but Paul was just, uh, the manner of Paul's life was this way because it was the manner of Jesus' life. Paul learned this from Christ. And that, my friends, is the gospel. That is our message. The person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we center our life around him, if we keep our eyes on him and take it off of ourselves, then I promise that through his Holy Spirit, he's going to make our manner slowly and surely befitting of the message that he's given us to take out. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example that Paul's given us of uh, his manner along with Timothy and Sylvanus' manner among the Thessalonians. But Father, we thank you that that was not something they just welled up within themselves with their own goodness, but rather that's something that they were doing as an imitation of your son. We thank you, Father, that Jesus has came and that this entire passage, as much as it is about Paul, is even more about him. Father, would you help us to set our eyes upon Jesus and our hearts upon him? And Father, as we do that, would you change our motives, our priorities, and our conduct? Father, we're people who recognize our own weakness. We know our sin so intimately, but Father, we long for our lives to reflect you. We long to be holy and righteous as you are. So Father, would you make us that through your Son and the power of your Spirit? We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.